Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, and welcome to this discussion on lockdown laws and the threats to our freedom. I'm Joshua Rosenberg. I'm a legal commentator, and I'll be chairing this event hosted by the RSA. I'm delighted to be talking to Adam Wagner, a human rights barrister and one of the UK's leading experts on COVID-19 laws. Adam practices from Doughty Street Chambers in London. He appears regularly on television and radio. And during the pandemic, he was often called on to interpret the bewildering array of COVID-19 regulations. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. I should explain that we're recording this discussion a few days before it goes out. That doesn't stop you from sharing your thoughts and comments with us if you'd like to. Uh, Indeed, we encourage you to do that. But it does mean we can't respond uh, or take your questions. If you're on Twitter, then you can use the hashtag RSA Freedoms. That's one word, RSA Freedoms. Now, Adam published this book on the 13th of October, Emergency State, How We Lost Our Freedoms in the Pandemic and Why It Matters. I said at the time that it was a book that needed to be written and nobody could have done it better. It chronicles two years of unprecedented restrictions, beginning with the very simple instruction given to the British people on the 23rd of March 2020. You must stay at home. Well, That, as Adam points out, was not an instruction at all. It didn't become law for another three days. The request, the plea, I suppose you might call it, was given to the British people by Boris Johnson. Remember him? He was the prime minister who accepted a fixed penalty notice for breaking the lockdown restrictions. Now, many of those regulations were made by the then health secretary, Matt Hancock. You may have noticed that he himself was uh, locked down last week. But for this discussion, I want to take things on a bit. We know that the government is very concerned about public protests, particularly about the Just Stop Oil protesters who block roads and prevent people going about their business. Rishi Sunak wants the Home Secretary and the police to do something about this. And there's apparently to be a meeting this week, though I can't tell you what the consequences will be because we're recording this on a Monday afternoon for transmission on Thursday. Now, Adam, going back to the two years of lockdown that you chronicle in your book, you wrote this year in the Times in September that although protest was never explicitly banned, the Metropolitan Police behaved as if it was. You also wrote that people should be given latitude to express themselves if they're doing it peacefully. I want to know from you whether that extends to blocking streets and preventing emergency vehicles from getting through? Well, during the pandemic, we had this very strange situation where there was um, an effective ban on protest for really the the best part of two years during the three, there were three periods of lockdown, um, mostly in 2020 and in the first few months of 2021. Um, the, The protest was never explicitly banned, but there was a ban on gatherings of two or more people outdoors for a significant period and then for and, and then slightly bigger numbers than that. And what effectively happened was that the police treated that as protest being entirely um, prohibited. And that went to court through the um, Sarah Everard vigil. Um, I was acting for um, some of the women who were trying to organize that vigil. And the court said, well, you got that wrong because you didn't take into account sufficiently the fact that the Human Rights Act gives us a right to protest. Um, 
And the I think there's a, there's a couple of things. One of the things I try and do in the book is just set out what what happened, um, the the really extraordinary things that happened in those two years. Because I think some a lot of those things people, lawyers or anybody would never have imagined could have happened. Um, I think the the almost complete ban on the right to protest is is one of those things. Because you would I think before the pandemic you would always assume the outdoor protest is you know a kind of safety valve that no matter what the the threat. Um, you would always have some um, ability to protest, and I think it, it's pretty extraordinary, just on a, on a factual basis, that it appears that that well, that, that was wrong, um, along with lots of other things that you would assume could never be banned. Um, but I think what we saw in the pandemic was a sort of preview of what happens when the police become more embroiled in the in what what I think of as a peace as peaceful protests, um, and peaceful protests are if they're on a large scale, do tend to be disruptive and obstructive. Um, but if they're not violent, the, the law has generally in the past, not exclusively, but generally, um, kept the criminal law away from um, those protests. Because of I, course, I, I, want, yeah. I want to press you on that, Adam, because as you say, uh, it's normally possible to protest. The lockdown restrictions are over. Um, and the police are in a difficult position because on the one hand, you've got all these messages from government saying uh, this sort of protest that we've been seeing in recent weeks and months is really going too far because it stops people going about their lawful business. On the other hand, you've got the police very aware, as you have said, that there is a right to peaceful protest and, and that that shouldn't be banned. It does leave the police in a very difficult position uh, immediately following uh, their perhaps going too far in banning protests during lockdown. Yeah, I think it absolutely does. The more the police are asked to come into these situations, which are essentially peaceful, which are really, they're really political actions. Um, I mean, they are political actions, protests. They are, they exist on a political plane. Um, they're not traditionally public order. Now, that being said, if someone's blocking a road, it is, um, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a criminal offence of obstructing the highway and there's been for a very long time. Um, been a statutory offence for obstructing the highway. So blocking the road is is illegal. Um, there are some limited exceptions where people are expressing a right to protest because traditionally protests have often, you know, processions have taken place on the roads. So you will, in, in, just in the same way that, um, I mean, lots of things block the roads. Um, football matches block the roads. Um, you know, uh, the coronation will block the roads. Um, Tra I traffic think, jams block the roads, but what about if you what about if you block half the road? Is that lawful yeah. or unlawful? Well, 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 it's it's. I think generally, um, it's not lawful to block the road. Um, it's just there may be exceptions. Now, I think what's going on with insulate Britain, I think, and and certainly the way the courts are treating it, is that the the purpose of the insulate Britain protest is obviously to bring attention to insulate Britain as a cause. But as a as a tactic, the tactic appears to be we are going to block the roads to get that attention. So it's it, it, in terms of direct action, it's not very directed at all. It's directed at the public rather than being directed at the government or um, or, you know, oil companies or, or that sort of thing. So I think the way the courts are treating it is, well, if this is this is protected by the right to protest, but it's at the far edge of the protection it's at the um it's not the it, in human rights law we, we would say it's not at the core of the rights and in fact that's what um the european court of human rights has said about go slow protests on the roads um there's a case called kudravikius which was um which has been very important in the um it was about lithuania but it's been very important in the uk protest 
law context where the courts have said um, a group of farm uh, protesters about farm something to do with farms um, blocking the roads were not at the core of the rights. So it's entirely entirely legitimate for the state to restrict those um, protests. So I don't I don't think there's any issue in human rights law um, for with people being arrested or prevented from protesting if they're going to if the purpose of the protest is to block the road. Um, but there may be some wriggle room around that when there's important causes which inevitably are going to block the road because you've got a big protest on it. So like um, everything in this area, it comes down to balance and it comes down to proportionality. And, you know, if people people getting very angry and sort of taking the law into their own hands or expecting the police to steam in and, uh, you know, and drag the protesters off the street like you see in Italy or France, I just don't think in, in this country it's going to happen. Well, let's look at the public order bill, which has been passed by the House of Commons. It's currently in its committee stage in the House of Lords. So the Lords blocked these proposals during the last session of Parliament because MPs hadn't been given a chance to consider them. Now, the Home Office, in what are called explanatory notes, uh, they say the purpose of the bill is to strengthen police powers to tackle dangerous and highly disruptive tactics employed by a minority of protesters. These include provisions to protect major transport projects and key national infrastructure from being targeted by protesters, causing significant delays to the traveling public, preventing the distribution of critical goods such as fuel and causing costly delays in construction. Now, if that bill is passed by Parliament and there's every reason to suppose that it will, then when that comes into effect, that will make uh, quite a difference, I suppose. I think it will. Um, I think what it actually does, if you get into the nitty gritty of it, is it is it will is it puts into statutory law what's been happening um, in the sort of civil injunctions, anti-protest civil injunctions. So lots of companies and government departments have been getting out these injunctions where they go to court and they say, well, if if so, the, the court will order that if somebody is protesting within a certain number of metres of a site entrance, say, an oil, uh, a fracking site or an oil refinery, um, or they lock themselves onto something, or they block the road around the area, um, or even if they just trespass, then they'll be in contempt of court, which could lead to up to two years imprisonment. Um, and this is, on one level, it's making that, it's turning those restrictions into criminal offences. But I think on another level, um, the thing that's worries me about this bill is it, is it really brings in a framework that's been used, a criminal law framework that's been used in um, knife crime, um, gang violence, um, drug crime. Um, so there's a, there's a sort of set of tools, including um, uh, sort of protest prevention orders, which is exactly what you get in knife crime or gangs, where you once someone's been convicted of a couple of protest offences, which could just be aggravated trespass, you know, very low level stuff, non-violent, they can then be ordered to stay out of a city centre or not associate with particular protest colleagues or even be tagged um, over, for up to two years, which is exactly how you deal with um, knife crime, terrorism, that sort of thing. Um, there's, these, there's these, all, these are these um, serious disruption prevention orders, is that what they're called? It, 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 exactly, exactly. So it will target individual protesters um, and they'll be the inevitably the sort of um, harder core end of the protest spectrum and the people who really um, in my experience will be willing to go to prison um, you'll just get a lot as you already are through the protest injunctions you're going to get a lot more peaceful protesters in prison you know the, it'll be in the hundreds I've no doubts um, the other thing that they're going to the, the other thing that this um, does which I think is really worrying is 
um, just like you have with knife crime, if a senior police officer says that a particular area is designated as a um, as a zone where you can have um, you can have suspicionless stop and search. So around um, and you could police could bowl into a very large protest like Ext Extinction Rebellion. And if they've got this order in place, um, this direction, then they can um, they can uh, uh, stop and search people without suspicion. Which is can hugely be hugely um, harassing, and they're looking for they're not looking for knives or uh, or drugs. They're looking for um, glue and sellotape. I mean, quite literally, because they are the the things they'll be looking for. The reason they say this is justified is because people they're looking for the equipment that people use to tie themselves together. Um, what, what, about, to, what about what about uh, bicycle locks? I mean, you can tie uh, yourself. I mean, to... I mean, it, it could be it, it could be bicycle locks. It could be string. It could be uh, duct tape. It could be um, Super glue, you know, and, and these are everyday objects. They're not, and, and they have, um, they're not, it's, they're very different to a knife or, 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 or a spliff or something like that, which are, you know, more obviously um, for, for criminal use. So it could be really, um, it, it, again, it's this thing, it's getting the police into situations where, which are nothing to do with public order, that are really to do with sort of annoyance or disruption. Um, and they're involved lots of people exercising their, political rights so um but, i think it's but, very different but haven't the protesters brought this upon themselves i mean this tactic of locking yourself onto a fixed object or locking yourself onto another protester uh, this practice of tunneling uh, to obstruct some uh, building work uh, these are things we have seen they haven't been specific offenses can't we rely on the police to use their discretion and only use these powers when they're really necessary yeah, well, I mean, locking on and tunneling are, are really very old tactics. I mean, Gandhi was was a famous locker on it. Um, uh, the, the suffragists had a tactic of um, slashing paintings to um, to use, you know, the, the, the thing that people are very upset about, the throwing soup at the painting. I mean, there was a suffragist who um, who slashed the, um, the Rokeby Venus by Velasquez um, with a meat cleaver, took a meat cleaver into the National Gallery. Um, so the, these kind of tactics, a tunneling, I mean, we probably all remember Swampy, um, or if, you, if you're of a certain age, you know, that, that was the original tunneling and creating bases and trees around Manchester Airport to prevent building of the second runway. And this stuff goes back a long, 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 long time. So I'm not sure the protesters have brought it upon themselves. I think that there is, but but also, you know, the aggravated trespass covers all of these situations. If you're not, if you're in somebody else's land and you're obstructing activity, lawful activities on the land, that's a criminal offence of aggravated trespass, which has just been put into um, on a statutory footing as well. So I think that the it's um, yes, um, the tactics themselves are um they the, the the obvious response by the government is oh, well let's all make all those things even more illegal than they already are but on the other hand they are a traditional part and parcel of disruptive protest um and my worry is that the what will end what you are seeing is a kind of centrifugal force where the more extreme the restrictions are the more extreme the tactics are um and and the more extreme the punishments are um, as I say, I, I've got clients now who are in prison right now for peaceful protesting. Um, I've never had that before, and I've been acting for protests for a long time. Um, and, and, and that is going to increase and increase and increase as course, the cases go through the system. While we're talking about public law, we should think for a moment about China. Large crowds took to the streets over the weekend to protest against the COVID restrictions. As we're speaking on Monday afternoon, 
we don't know what the authorities are going to do about what they must see as a dangerous challenge. But do you think that restrictions of some sort may still be justified in China? Oh, it's, it's been it's incredibly difficult, um, th this situation, because China's lock China's lockdowns were very different to ours. I mean, they had extremely um, draconian lockdowns and enforcement. Um, you really, when you look at lockdowns, you you really look to enforcement. You know how strictly are they being enforced? And our, our lockdowns um, became ever less strictly enforced to the point where, in the second and third lockdown, there were so many exceptions um, that it was became very difficult for the police to enforce them. And most of the enforcement was against. Um, people, you know, uh, young young men who were out and about just sort of, you know, causing trouble on the streets rather than anybody else breaking the lockdowns. Um, and they were enforced much more strictly in France and, and Germany and Italy, as I, as I say in the book. But in China, because they had already the authoritarian structure and surveillance system, um, they enforced them um, as strictly as they possibly could. People really did stay at home. And what that meant is that the COVID hasn't really taken off in China. They're still in the situation we were in, say, um, at the second lockdown in, in autumn 2020, when they, if they start relaxing restrictions now, um, the population is basically unprotected. There's not very high vaccination rates. So there's very low um, infection rates because people, because they've had this zero COVID policy, which has been on, on one level in, in, in terms of its aim, it's been successful. But it's created a, um, I mean, a, a, a kind of almost semi-permanent emergency state, as I describe in, in the book. This um this the state that's been distorted that's been um, turned around in order to fight off a danger, um, but um, uh, the result of which is that power has become hugely um, concentrated, if it even more so than it was. But the restrictions in place have massively um, it's restricted people's uh, liberties, um, and I think the difference is that in in most countries in the world. COVID got out anyway. Um, COVID infected the populations. Um, pretty much everybody's had COVID more than and it's many, many people more than once. And a lot of people have already died. The most vulnerable have already died. Um, and so in China, you, 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 they're still at the beginning in a way. Um, and you're going to see, it's hard to see how it will be resolved um, without some either some sort of popular revolution or you know, China just sort of doubling down on restrictions or relaxing and then trying to figure out some way of handling the inevitable surge. What, what you're saying, in effect, is that although the uh, policy of herd immunity, which was mentioned at the very beginning of lockdown in the United Kingdom, was derided and then quickly abandoned, that's what we've got in the UK, really. People are vaccinated or recovered, and, and therefore they're relatively safe, at least compared with China. Well, we ended up, we, we landed somewhere in the middle. Um, in, in the UK and in most countries, in, in actual fact, that the, the restrictions could be maintained for a while, um, but only in short bursts. Um, and once the vaccine came along and was widely taken up, um, in addition to the very, you know, the, the fact that lots of people got COVID, you could have some sort of imperfect middle ground where certain people were protected and managed to avoid certain vulnerable people were, were protected and managed to avoid covid um and at the same time um look i mean you still had many many people died i mean the uk have had over two hundred thousand people died um, which is a large significant proportion of the population um but herd immunity i, I think that the to to give um a bit of the benefit of the doubt to i think it was chris witty who mentioned herd immunity at, at the time 
um, he was just talking about the reality of the fact that like they like it happened with with every um, virus like COVID in the end, nearly everyone's going to get it. And you can slow that down, but you can't prevent it. Um, I, I suppose he wasn't thinking about uh, a massively um, restrictive and surveillance focused and, and, and enforcement focused state like China, where just to, you know, remind people that, that they've they've also got detention centers um set up where they take people um forcibly who have either got covid or have been exposed to covid so it's it's just a really um they, they have achieved um true suppression of the virus but the cost has been absolutely extraordinary so so that that's really what you describe as the emergency state and you draw a distinction in your book between the emergency state and the state of emergency that was declared in the UK in February 2020. How do you define uh, the emergency state? So the, the, emerg the state of emergency triggers the emergency state, but what uh, the emergency state, by my definition, is, is what happens to the state when it reorganizes itself to fight an external threat. Um, and that doesn't need to be a virus. It could be a war. It could be a, an economic shock. It could be a natural disaster. But generally speaking, you have to, e e even in a, the most um, democratic of states, you have to um, change things around for a bit. You have to, you lose the benefit of um, sort of detailed parliamentary scrutiny because you have to move really fast. You generally, you know, in a democratic state, you don't concentrate power because you know what happens when you concentrate power. It leads to corruption and um, bad decision making when it's only you know power is is generally diffused but in an emergency state you have to concentrate power for a while again because you have to make decisions very quickly and and ruthlessly um but it comes with with um downsides which such as as i've mentioned corruption i think there's there's inevitably corruption when when there's too much power focused into too small a number of people um there will also be poor decision making and and the longer you maintain this um, the lack of scrutiny and the concentration of power into those few hands, the the worse the decision making gets because you lose all of the benefits of um, of a democratic state where power is sort of diffused and power and and there's a communication system that goes up and down from the ground to the to the top of the hierarchy. Um, so people, so the leaders know empirically and evidentially what's going on, and they can calibrate the policies according to that. But you lose all that if you um, if you have everything going through a small group of people. Uh, one of um, the interesting points you make about the emergency state is that often we, the public, we actually want that to happen. Now, I think you're right to say that many of us will willingly accept restrictions if we think they're for the common good indeed some of us might even urge the government to go further but but surely it's just the benefits of the emergency state we want rather than the restrictions we want to be protected against the the peril war plague whatever it may be but we don't actually want the emergency state to happen do we no it's it's a bit like um when you've um if you you've got cancer you don't want to have chemotherapy because it's a really unpleasant and difficult process but you take it because you you know it's for the long term benefit of of your you know of curing the virus the disease, and and the same way with an emergency state. I think we all know intrinsically, um, even if we've not been through a crisis like this, we know 
that, that, that you have to make sacrifices. Um, in the Second World War, it's, uh, I look quite a lot at the Second World War as a comparison because I think it's it's actually got it's a really interesting comparison. Lots of um, secondary legislation um, intruding into the intricacies of people's lives. Um, and lots of restrictions and very concentrated power. In the Second World War, the government said we, we asked people to lend their liberty um, for the for the war efforts. I mean, in the same way they were, you know, digging digging for Britain, going and and fighting in the war, they would lend their liberties so that you know you could survive the Blitz um, and things like that. And I think people intrinsically know that, but they also psychologically, um, it, it's I, I, one of the things I wanted to capture in the book. Um, for later on, when five years, three years down the line, when the COVID inquiry reports and we all say in retrospect, yes, that was dreadful and that all went wrong. Um, it's really important to remember how it felt to be in the middle of that crisis um, and the, the, the just the fear and the panic of not knowing what's going to happen. You know, is this how dangerous is this virus? How quickly is it going to spread? Am my relatives going to die? Am I going to die? Am I going to suffer from long COVID? All of that. Um, we we do want it to happen. We want we want someone to take control and to tell us what to do and to and to do the right thing, even if it means um, taking risks and paying the consequences later. And I think that's um, it's it's incredibly important to remember when you're thinking back and you're wondering how could all this have happened um, that that's how it feels to go through a, a real threat and a real emergency. Uh, it's very interesting because you remind us in your book of the laws that were made by Parliament, the regulations that were made by ministers, how they were introduced without debate, how they differed from the guidance that was given to the public, how they varied across the United Kingdom, how the police misunderstood them, how they were inappropriately enforced by prosecutors and courts, and of course how they were ignored by officials and ministers at the very highest level of government. But I, I don't know how it feels to you. I mean, it wasn't very long ago, but because it was so awful in every way that you've described, we've really tried to put it out of our minds. We've almost tried to forget that it happened, pretend it didn't happen. Is that how you feel or, or is it still very close to you? Yeah, I, I, a lot of people have read the book said exactly that, said, I can't believe it. I mean, it was only it only, you know, it was only this time last year we were debating whether to have more restrictions because it was the Omicron outbreak. I mean, it seems like it, it and it was only earlier this year that the the final on the 22nd of March, the final COVID restriction was removed. So this stuff really happened very recently, but psychologically, I think we all, it was such a trauma that we all would quite like to, to forget. Um, and I think the, the importance of remembering is to understand that all of those things that you mentioned, the overreach, the, the fact that parliament just sort of took a back seat. I think a lot of those things can be insured against um, if for next time. Um, I think it was excusable in a way that in this country, not in the not in the certain eastern countries, but in this country and in the West, we haven't experienced a major um, epidemic like COVID um, for a hundred years. Or we just we don't we've got lost the muscle memory of how to deal with all that. Um, we used to experience them all the time for hundreds of years. Um, you only need to read the Old Testament to find you know how to deal with quarantine and, and that sort of thing. But I think that we we, we will snap back into um, th that kind of behavior if if we come up against another pandemic. But certain things um, like that happen to our society, I think we've there's ways we can protect ourselves against ourselves um, for, for next time. 
You also admit to having been troubled by a fundamental question at a time when lockdowns were a regular part of life for us all. What should you, as a human rights lawyer, have said at the time about them? How did you resolve that question in your mind? I found it really difficult. And, and one of the um, the criticisms that people have made of the book, um, such as Lord Sumption, is that it's um, he, who reviewed it and, and said it was very sort of powerful on the on the criticisms. But I didn't go far enough in in criticising the, the restrictions. It was really hard at the time. I mean, it was hard for everybody. I'm not saying it was hard for me as a lawyer, but just understanding what the limits of human rights you know, law is. Um, what, what can human rights law say about these almost unimaginably large balancing decisions that had to be made, um, not just by our government, but by every government in the world. Um, what do you what do you allow to happen? What do you um, leave down to guidance? How do you protect, which groups do you privilege in terms of if, if the one group over another, you know, that just the, 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 the most crushing example, I think emotionally through the entire pandemic was the release of, um, of elderly people back to care homes at the beginning, towards the very beginning. Um, and it's a decision which the government's been hugely criticized for and in fact was found to be unlawful. But you could see, I, I, having done a, an inquest quite recently into um, an ambulance worker that died at that, at that very sort of in those weeks and reading through all the decision-making and the policies um, that the government were faced with, the health secretary was faced with, well, on the one hand, we need to empty the hospitals because we're about to have a wave of, of you know, people with a, a new disease that we've never had before. And it's got to be, we've got to have enough space. And on the other hand, you've got lots of vulnerable people who need to be protected, who are the very people who are most vulnerable, and they knew at the time, to catching COVID. So we're going to have to send them back to their care homes, but in a safe way. Um, and probably they didn't do it in a safe way. But you can see that decision of having to choose one bad choice against another bad choice. Um, they're, they're, so, they're kind of inherently policy decisions and really hard to say um, on incomplete evidence. Well, what's the what's the right? You know, you can't put it into a sort of human rights machine and say this is the answer. And maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, every, there'll be a consensus and say, well, this was wrong and this was right. And lockdowns were wrong, and but you know, curfews were right or, or, or quarantine was right, et cetera, et cetera. But I never was able to. I, I always felt sort of inadequate um, to the task of saying conclusively, this is the answer. This is what we need to be doing um, policy wise. Uh, but that's not to say, you know, the, the book does deal with lots of individual policies such as hotel quarantine the the bans on protests work the ban on worship um the fact that the sex was sort of almost accidentally banned between people who couldn't who weren't living in the same house for over a year in in, in parts of the country um I, I do look at all those issues and try and understand whether there is an answer but um you know this sort of big unifying answer to the question what were we meant to do when covid struck i don't think is um is there yet and Adam, of course, you're a human rights lawyer, and human rights lawyers are accused by certain people, particularly the government, of objecting to just about anything that governments try to do. They, uh, there's a case on at the moment about how quickly somebody gets treatment for certain conditions, also all that sort of thing. So, you know, human rights lawyers are not slow in coming forward. But what struck me as most interesting is that there were no significant challenges to the lockdown regulations in the courts, or certainly none uh, that were successful, none that troubled the government. Why is that, do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, there were, a lot, there were lots of challenges, um, and I acted in quite a lot of the challenges, um, but the courts 
set their stall out in the Dolan case um, pretty early on. So I, I guess that was in the summer of 2020, leading to the autumn when it when it um, got dismissed in the Court of Appeal. The court very, very clearly put the, put the foot down. The Lord Chief Justice um, gave the judgment and said, this is not for us. Um, these policies are inherent. Just what I've just said, you know, they're inherently matters of social policy. They cannot be, even though there's a human, lots of human rights elements to them. We're just not going to go there. Um, and I think my, my worry, but I, I compare that decision to um, the famous Liversidge and Anderson case um, during the Second World War, when I mean there was no dissent in Dolan. Amazingly, um, there was no. Bearing in mind, Dolan was a, a challenge to the regulations. Um, the biggest restriction on um on people's rights since the second world war that's what um the, the permission the judge who gave it um partial permission or, to, or no i think he, he just uh, lord justice hickenbottom um just said there needs to be a rolled up hearing so i don't think he gave it permission just said wow look at this um the the the, the court just said well um it, it's not for us um and and even Liversidge and anderson which was the equivalent case in the second world war when the defence regulations, um, which allowed for indefinite detention on an, on the nod of the Home Secretary. Um, there was a famous dissent by Lord Atkin who said, even amongst the clash of arms, the laws are not silent. Um, but there was nothing like that in, in the pandemic. Um, there was really just a sort of universal, we're not dealing with this um, situation. And I think, at the very least, I think the court should have, con had have you know, considered those cases at a full hearing and thought through you know, the question of, for example, whether the um, Public Health Act allowed for um, such extreme um, restrictions, which were never envisaged in, in specific form when the, um, when, the, when the act was being changed in 2008. And I know that because I've read the debates and then nothing, there's nothing about lockdowns and there can't have been anything about lockdowns because there had never been a national lockdown in 2008. The first one, I think, was in 2009. So, I, I think there was a huge amount to do and to look at um, in terms of proportionality, in terms of whether the restrictions um, were permitted by the primary legislation which created the regulations. Um, and the courts just sort of um, ducked it, really. And, and the man who brought the case, Simon Dolan, who you know was a public-spirited individual, um, uh, he ended up having to pay the government's legal costs to some extent, I think. I mean, either he misjudged the mood of the courts or the courts misjudged the mood of the public. W what are the broad lessons? This is really the, the final question to you, Adam. What are, what are the broad lessons that we should learn from lockdown uh, and, and uh, take forward uh, now things, at least in, you know, in the Western world, not clearly in China, uh, things are, are recovering and people are still ill, but uh, you know, we, we don't have these restrictions anymore. Well, I think in the UK, we have to look at the fact that um, even if the restrictions were broadly correct, um, and I'll leave that um, to the COVID inquiry to decide, there were 109 regulations which created all of the restrictions, you know, travel restrictions, self-isolation, hotel quarantine, COVID passes, and the lockdowns and the gathering bans. Um, over the, of those 109 regulations, only eight of them um, were debated in Parliament before they came into force. Usually the day before, um, usually Parliament had been given a few hours to read the regulations, to digest them. Um, and the regulations, not, not a single one of those 109 regulations was amended because there was no way of amending them, um, even though and if, if this had all been done under the Civil Contingencies Act, which is what happens, what you use if there's any kind of disaster apart from public health, um, they, the, the Parliament could have amended the, the regulations. 
I think it's important to understand that, that there was no parliament basically took a back seat. And at the same time, the courts, um, as I've said, took a complete back seat. Um, unlike in lots of other countries, um, in lots of other countries, the courts were intimately involved. In France, the Constitutional Court um, overturned 50 lockdown laws. Um, in, in Spain, the entire first period of uh, public emergency was struck down and they had to pay back all the fines because they, it had not properly been justified, the public emergency under the Constitution. And there's lots of examples like that. And I think that it, it, it's I, I'm not saying that the we would have had a really great experience of the pandemic if the courts and parliament had been more involved. But I think we have to see as a warning sign democratically that the government was allowed and I say the government, it was really only four men. It was Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Matt Hancock and Michael Gove, who sat on the COVID cabinet, cabinet committee. They made all the decisions. Um, they were totally, um, almost totally unscrutinized, almost totally unaccountable. Um, there is, the, we've not spoken about Partygate, but there was a huge sort of back, behind closed doors breaking of the rules. And there was also the very troubling VIP, VIP lane stuff where, now, I think £4.8 billion worth of um, public contracts were given to people who had had contacts with Conservative MPs and Lords. So all of this going on at the same time, I think that um, emergency states are a danger time for societies. Um, we need to protect ourselves from corruption, from bad decision making as much as we can. Um, and the ways to do it um, are, well, first of all, read the book. <laughs> and then second of all, um, think about ways to um, protect ourselves in the next emergency. Adam Wagner, that's been a fascinating conversation. I'm afraid that's all we have time for now. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, Adam's book, Emergency State, is out now. The RSA have provided a discount code for anybody who buys it through Foils Bookshop. The code is FOILSRSA20. Foils RSA20, uh, and uh, I think that code and a link to the book should be appearing in the live chat as we speak. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you to the RSA for hosting the event. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the RSA and how to get involved in their global fellowship community, you can visit the RSA, all one phrase, dot org. Thank you very much for watching and goodbye. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.